0: InDefensive Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash Their monthly contributions ensure that InDefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe
1: hello everyone and welcome to the indefense of plants podcast the official podcast of indefenseofplants.com what's up this is your host matt welcome to the show how's everyone doing this week in this episode we're keeping the paleobotany ball rolling in fact we're still focusing on that end cretaceous extinction event and how it affected plant communities Joining us today to talk about this is Dr. Ian Miller, who is the Director of Earth and Space Sciences and the Curator of Paleobotany at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. As you're going to hear, Dr. Miller is obsessed with paleobotany and how it can be used to infer paleoclimates, paleoecologies, and so much more. And specifically today, we're going to be talking about how you can use the shape of leaves in the fossil record to infer things about ancient climates. Are the leaf edges toothed? Are they smooth? Are there drip tips? These sorts of questions have way more implications than just simple plant anatomy. This is really fascinating work and Dr. Miller is deeply passionate about this subject. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Ian Miller. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Ian Miller, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about your research today. But before we get there, let's tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
0: Oh, thanks, Matt. I'm super excited to be here as well. And so, my name is Ian Miller, as you said, and I'm a paleobotanist. I work at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, where I'm a curator, and I'm also the chair of the Earth and Space Sciences there at the museum. So I run a a team of paleontologists and geologists as well as do my own research in plants. So that's that's sort of what I do now. And I got to this point, sort of chasing fossil plants (laughs) in the American West.
1: Were you always interested in fossil plants though? I mean, that's a really interesting interest for like a child to get into. You don't hear that a lot. I mean, I was a dinosaur kid. I know a lot of other dinosaur kids out there, but fossil plants, I mean, it took even me a little bit to get to the point where those were interesting. But now I would argue sometimes they're more interesting than the dinosaurs, but that's heresy. And I think in a lot of circles.
0: (laughs) It is. And I I suffer from that all the time. I'm constantly battling the dinosaur folks (laughs) to make sure that the plants get the same sort of. Uh, airtime. So I was a mineral kid. I grew up in Eastern Washington State. And so I was always after, you know, quartz crystals and pyrite and things like that, and mine tailings that were were around the ranch that I grew up on. So I kind of discovered fossils a little late in the game, though I did have this interesting formative experience when I was really little. I was born in Seattle, and uh, there's lots of Miocene rock around Seattle. And right there on I-5, i 5 No, it was I ninety right outside of Issaquah. Uh, My grandfather took me to a road cut. I can still remember pulling these fifteen million year old clams out of the hillside, and they're big like softball sized clams. Nice. So we had one of those on the mantle for a long time. But it was all about minerals for me. You know, I had the collecting gene, so I built the bedroom with all these different (laughs) mineral specimens. And uh, it wasn't until sort of mid-high school that I met a person from Seattle. Um, He was sort of the part-time curator of paleobotany at the Burke Museum. His name was Wesley Ware. And Wes was an artist, uh, just this incredibly eclectic guy, incredible writer, author, poet, and this part-time paleobotany curator. And he played actually a pretty formative role in a number of paleobotanists' lives. And uh, so he intersected with me for a while and Introduced me to fossil plants.
1: Awesome. And what did that early introduction look like? I mean, how does one go from just kind of being an earth scientist, geology nut, uh, kind of rock hound, if I dare say, uh, into yep. really diving into paleobotany in a big way?
0: So for me, it was a foundation excavation of Wenatchee, Washington. So it was an artist who, uh, she was a painter, uh, Jan Mack. She's still alive and she's painting all kinds of beautiful landscapes of eastern Washington. Nice. But she built her house up about above the town of Wenatchee, and she dug into a, a, a formation that's Eocene in age, and she knew Wes through, and my grandfather was an artist, they all kind of knew each other, and we ended up in this foundation excavation in, uh, in Wenatchee, Washington, where all these Eocene leaves were coming out of the ground, and I couldn't really believe it, I was sort of <laughs> shocked. By the, um, you know, the beauty of the fossils. And, you know, Wes kept talking about how these are going to be important for science and all kinds of things like that. And that was right before I went to college. Mm. So I went, I went to college, I got a degree in geology, ultimately, and kind of lost paleobotany there for a little while. But during my, so I set out to do a senior thesis uh, to finish up my college sort of journey. And I waited too long. So normally, you know, at the in an undergraduate setting, you'd you know, the professors put you on these keck projects and things like that and they kind of have these ready-made theses for you which is really really incredible and they help propel students and I who knows what I was doing I was screwing around and not getting, <laughs> getting the job done undergrad and stuff so I was undergrad stuff exactly we'll leave it at that so like two months after any every deadline was passed I was like well I want to be one of the one of those kids too and they're like yeah that's not gonna happen <laughs> so I ended up designing my own project at Washington state near where I grew up to so to excavate and study fossil leaves. Wow. Yeah. So that was sort of the kickoff of and then that sort of led into any number of, you know, threads that got me to the present day. But maybe the most interesting of which uh was that uh to kick that project off, I had this idea I was gonna work on this flora out in eastern Washington called the Republic. And uh, so Wes, again, was sort of helped counseling me and, and that kind of thing. But the, the person that was sort of working on it or had helped discover it at the time was Kirk Johnson, who was oh. um, the head of. Uh, uh, well, he was the paleobotany curator at the Denver Museum, which is an hour north of where I was going to school in Colorado Springs. So I went up to talk to him and he was like. That sounds really interesting, but you don't want to do that. You want to do this instead, which was to work on this mid-Cretaceous flora <laughs> that was near Winthrop, Washington, uh, about an hour north of where I grew up.
1: Nice. Yeah, Kirk, uh, both his work and his science communication skills should be lauded, but it sounds like he's a good inspirer of young minds and can help direct people as well. So that's another nice cap he can wear.
0: Indeed. He is an incredible mentor, and he, he took me under his wing and helped me sort of design a project. And the idea was to go collect this, this 100 million year old fossil flora wow. um, near Winthrop, Washington. And it was on a chunk of rock that uh, uh, presumably had been moved from Mexico to Washington state in the Cretaceous. And we set out with the idea that we could test that using the leaves that we found or the plants that we found on these sort of exotic blocks of, of of rock there in Washington state. So we we made this plan and went back to Washington. I have four younger brothers. I put them all to work (laughs) and and I didn't call Kirk all summer. He thought I was gone. He thought I totally flaked out. Whoops. Uh, But at the end of December, the summer, I just, I just didn't know any better. I just didn't think, you know, communication. But, you know, What's I didn't that? Really worry about that exactly. So I just sent something like four thousand pounds of rock back to the museum at the end of the summer <laughs> in these huge oil barrels. And Kirk was at that point. I think Kirk was like, "Oh God, he could actually collect fossils." So oh no, that made him. Uh, that <laughs> that was uh, that was actually a check in the, in the right box. But um, but ultimately, we ended up working on this this project, and then it turned into my PhD thesis.
1: Wow. That's a really cool journey into this, and it's nice that it's kind of not necessarily accidental, but just kind of floundering led you down a path that ended up you know, consuming your life, really, and becoming a career, a very fruitful one at that, but... The thing that always interests me about paleobotany is is a lot of people that I talk to are similar to you in that it's really the geology, the paleontology, maybe even mineralogy background that gets them yeah, interested right. in it. But to be a good paleobotanist, you can't just enjoy those things to the exclusion of botany. So you almost have to dive, well, not almost, you really have to dive into extant botany and almost get a dual degree or at least learning career under your belt in true botany, right? So what was that journey like as someone that kind of came from more yeah. of a geology background?
0: Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. So we're we're sort of have to build up these two sort of bodies of scientific expertise, and uh, paleobotanists fall into these two groups. You're either a botanist first or a geologist first, hmm. and I was a geologist first. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to become a botanist, and I'm still trying to do that. <laughs> right. So I spent a lot of time thinking about native plants, and I'm always trying to think like a plant because it's much easier for me to think like a rock. Nice. <laughs> like <laughs> a plant. Um. Uh, But for me, it was a number of field courses in graduate school, spent a bunch of time in Costa Rica uh, looking at dry tropical forests and just doing lots of plant surveys. And yeah, I mean, just trying to get into being Mm -hmm. a botanist. But it is interesting because you have to learn this sort of whole other, as you know, this whole other way of thinking, like a whole other reproductive path how, you know, plants propagate their their genes and how that works in a a genetic sense. It's just different than all the sort of undergrad classes you took in zoology, right? And by the time you get to grad school, the botany kids know all that stuff. And you're just, (laughs) just sort of, you're lost, but at the same time you could run circles around them from a geological standpoint. So,
1: yeah. And I mean, when you really strip everything back in terms of like the, the culture of it all, there are a few things that go hand in hand better than geology and botany because plants are rooted in the ground. There are, more so than most other organisms at the mercy of what geology is doing. But they can also inform a lot of what's going on, too, if you know what you're looking for. And what's great is that, you know, I talked to, again, a variety of paleobotanists. Some people are into, you know, just trying to figure out timing of events or figure out how many different species there were, or just identifying the fossils that they're looking at. But, you know, there's so many different ways you can insert yourself and the thing that excites me most about your work is it shows that you can go even farther with fossil plants and use them to infer something about both ecosystems and climate and biogeography in a very deep time sense. And that's an exciting route to go with paleobotany.
0: Yeah, they become this incredible tool, right? Just like they are in the modern world. And there are just a precious few of these traits that we are able to apply to fossil <laughs> plants, right? The diversity of traits that we, we have in the modern day to address ecological questions are phenomenal. And as you know, the list just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the databases get bigger, and it's phenomenal. But developing those into proxies that we can actually use in the past is big business in paleobotany, if hmm. you will. And in particular, we use a couple of key ones, the presence and absence of teeth, the area of teeth uh, as it relates to the area of the leaf, um, also the area of the leaf as it relates to the width of the petiole, And first of those really tells us something about temperature. And the second of those tells us something about the leaf lifespan and gets us towards this leaf economic spectrum and sort of helps us you know, start to use plants to address some of these questions. But what's amazing is that it just helps unlock, in many ways, the first sort of ecological parameters that you can compare from the past with the present, right? We're always at this sort of impasse. Like modern ecologists can observe and watch these things play out and measure them and, and see all the different interactions. And we're sort of left with these imprints of, <laughs> of leaves on rocks. And you're sort of like, how do you, how do you get the two groups to... To connect. And it, and it sort of lies in these sort of trait-based proxies uh, that we can apply to, to fossil leaves and a few other things. But yeah.
1: Yeah. I, As a trait ecologist myself, uh, I can find this topic to be difficult to introduce people that are not familiar with trait ecology at all. But yeah. it really is Unintended, rooted in the fact that plants are these yeah. sessile organisms that are really much more at the mercy of their local environmental conditions, and their Absolutely. physical attributes actually reflect that because if you can't move, You really have to be able to handle what's going on. And that's what's really cool is is reading in your work, you're using a lot of the same techniques that, you know, me as a modern trait ecologist is using. But I also really respect the challenges because I can take a leaf off. I can go back, measure its thickness, dry it out, weigh it, use all of these scaling and, and different sort of allometric equations to get at what's actually these, these right relationships but you have imprints you know you're lucky if they're hyper detailed and you can get like veining structure but the the fact that they're in rocks and that they're fossils adds a very distinct layer of challenges to being a trait based ecologist correct <laughs>
0: Indeed, oh my goodness, it's so much so. So we're in some ways we're we're so primitive compared to modern uh, <laughs> trait-based ecologists. I didn't think but of we do have way. these. <laughs> 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 no, uh, I appreciate that, but it's but it's true, right? I mean, um, and we're and we're always looking at again this big data set of all the traits that that we have in modern plants and thinking about you know what could be applied. So this, this one that I've used a lot is um, simply the presence and absence of two species within sort of a, you know, what you might interpret as a stand, a forest stand or a hectare plot in the past, right? Mm. So in the modern, we can, we've been able to show, and it's really sort of interesting because we don't really know why it works. So so much of that. Anyway, the. Basically, you take a you know a standardized plot of land, and you count up all the uh, woody dicot species, and the percentage of those species that produce teeth versus the percentage. That don't correlated to the average temperature of that hmm. plot of land on the planet. And this was first noticed in 1915. Oh wow. It was a paper in Science Magazine, uh, so 106 years ago now. <laughs> and it was in the 60s uh, that it was sort of resurrected by uh, this amazing paleobotanist at the USGS, Jack Wolf. And Jack was a was a super brilliant guy. And he he was so clever, at sort of guessing the answer with sort of a limited amount of data, and then the rest of us are still going back and testing what he thought, <laughs> and often finding out that he was right. Jeez, was sort of sort of fun. But anyway, it gives us this tool, and this, it's one of a couple in our sort of one of, uh, in our tool chest, if you will. But it makes us pretty relevant when it comes to sort of telling ancient, you know, saying something about ancient climates. And so paleobotanists go out, take a whole bunch of fossils out of the ground, sort them into species. And one of the things we can do then is get an estimate of the average temperature of that chunk of, you know, of that area, that formation, that time period.
1: That's a really interesting idea because I think a lot of people listening, especially if you live in the temperate zone, will be very familiar with toothed leaves. I mean, it's a very uh, interesting character to look at. It can be very helpful in identification of species, but... Let's explore this idea of how it can be used to infer temperature, at least. Like, why are you looking at teeth more than any other characteristic? I mean, there's probably other characters too, but why teeth?
0: Yeah, you know, why teeth? Well, good question. Um, I think if you could answer that, you could, uh, that's probably <laughs> a, a high profile paper right there. Right? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, there's a handful of ideas out there. Teeth are these incredible sort of zones of specialized cells on the edge of the leaf that produce all kinds of plant hormones. You know, they produce the special hormone of oxen, particularly in early sort of bud burst and growth of these leaves early in the season. There's sites of guttation where you're, you're getting a ton of water and other plant compounds being pushed out of the teeth, which, you know, is helping drive transpiration and and so on and so forth they also break up the boundary layer um, around leaves uh, which may be important and again transpiration and that kind of thing but it's still sort of open so there's kind of this suite of ideas and people are sort of circling in on you know why might you have more tooth species of trees in colder climates versus warmer climates. And in some ways, you probably don't want teeth, or you don't need teeth if you have plenty of water, or maybe it's the other way around. I can't remember. Anyway, the <laughs> but the, suffice it to say, right? So there's there's all these, these sort of ideas of why there might be teeth or not teeth. It would be really interesting to hear your perspective on that. But suffice it to say, this proxy exists. And again, it's totally empirical. There's been about 1,500 plots around the planet where this has been measured. Every continent. And the relationship remains robust. I mean, it's like any good ecological relationship. Uh, it's like got an R squared of about 0.6. So it's not like it's a, you know, it's, it's not like engineering or something.
1: Pretty strong correlation.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. my work. Yeah. So. Uh, but of course, sometimes when you work with geologists, they want to see like a mineral reaction where it's got a, like a, you know, 0.99, you know, it's a perfect uh, line. Of, physics, you know, get out of here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, we're talking about the real world here. Anyway, so it becomes this incredible tool where, I, let's say if I'm interested in a problem. So again, back to this, where I worked in Washington State for my PhD, there was this longstanding idea that these huge island arcs were docked in Mexico, really Baja, California, Mexico, as they rode in on ancient Pacific plate, uh, that mm-hmm. plate, which is called the Farallon is completely gone. It's actually underneath us here in Colorado and, and in the mid continent, they can image it. It's sitting down there, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's it's, good. it's being recycled into the earth, but it was coming in at this oblique angle. So as it was subducting underneath North America, it was coming in at this oblique angle, and this huge island arcs, so and we're talking hundreds of miles long slam into North America. And then over a period of about 30 million years, would so slowly scrape up the coastline and then finally sort of suture to the continent as many as 3,000 kilometers north of where wow. they sort of landed. And so there were two camps going into this and it was a huge debate in the paleomagnetic community. Uh, there's these, they're called the fixists and the mobilists. The mobilists <laughs> were the people who thought it had traveled a long ways. The fixists thought that these rocks landed just where they are today. And uh, so we went in to see if we could test it with fossils and in particular with plants. Uh, So if we could find some fossil floras on these exotic blocks, we could then use their temperature, you know, estimate the temperature based on the leaves and decide whether or not that's more of a temperate signal or more of a tropical signal and then restore that fossil site to where it grew uh, 100 million years ago.
1: Oh, man. And I'm obviously thinking about this from more of an ecological standpoint is like, oh, he's looking at temperature, trying to figure out, was this a temperate zone, a subtropical or tropical climate? But there is other, you know, just goes to show you how like bias of, of interest and background kind of plays in here is even from the geologic standpoint, you're like, I, I, whatever the ecosystem was doing, whatever, but let's figure out where these islands came from. And that even of itself, the biogeography and the deep time plate tectonics, which, you know, for a lot of people listening might not realize is that's a very recent, uh, sort of theory, I guess, or, or it's only recently kind of been confirmed and, You know, we take it for granted today, but that, you know, even within our grandparents' uh, generation was not the standard for what we were trying to figure out. But here's where paleobotany can be applied in so many different directions.
0: Absolutely. And and to your point about plate tectonics, it's like one of the five major discoveries of the 20th century, right? You might not hold it up there with DNA, but certainly (laughs) in the geological realm. It is, right? I mean, it is. it was the key to understanding how our planet behaves uh, and all of its cycles. And so, uh, you know, really the first clear ideas around plate tectonics were emerging in the 60s, and it was still well into the 80s that major camps of people didn't really wow. think that uh, plate tectonics are real. And, and, you know, the whole new class of students were, all, you know, 100% on board. It was just, <laughs> uh, you know, it lagged into the, into the 80s. But you're right. So paleobotany, and this—it's ironic because it actually, um, it's actually—it's tied to plate tectonics longer than any story that, uh, you know, that I'm telling. It all it goes all the way back to uh, to Wagner, who is really one of the people who was instrumental and in sort of saying like South America and Africa seem to have similar coastlines. Mm-hmm. And this fellow was a, a meteorologist, and it was about 1920 or 25, something like that. I can't quite remember the details, but. Um, he argued that there were similar fossils, including similar plants on both continents, and that these things may have once been joined together. And so, you know, in that same thread, I was doing something on sort of a smaller scale, looking at fossil plants on these far-traveled terrains. And it's interesting. So, you know, long story short, we we went and dug something like three or 4,000, you know, 100 million year old fossil plants out of the ground. And it's a really fascinating flora because it's a it's not long after the angiosperms, the flowering plants evolved. And so they're started, starting to take over the landscape from an ecological standpoint, but they only make up about 50% of the flora. So there's all these bizarre things that are sort of hanging on hmm. that are slowly being replaced by the new and, and incredible angiosperm that evolved some 40 million years prior to this moment in time, hundred million years ago. So you get all the seed ferns, which are a type of gymnosperm, uh, but look like ferns, but are producing seeds. And, um, you know, other groups of, you know, this group of essentially flowering cycads that are probably related to angiosperms called the um, An incredible diversity of archaic conifers. And they're all living alongside these new flowering plants.
1: Wow. Well, we
0: still think the flowering plants since this parameter of you know teeth and no teeth we think that that we can apply that pretty deep in their evolutionary history. And it turned out that we predicted a much more tropical temperature for this site than what would have been predicted. And we can do that prediction based on models but also tons of floras of the same age that are fixed in North America that we know haven't moved. Hmm. Right, So there was a there was a sort of old database of, you know, people have been collecting fossil plants for the Smithsonian for 100, 150 years. So We're able to tally up those and say that this temperature in Kansas was, you know, gives us this number, this temperature in Montana, give, you know, this flora in Montana gives us another number. And this site in Winthrop gave us a warmer temperature than all of those. So wow. it should have been further south. So again, as you, know, you decrease temperature as you move north in latitude, so you're just able to produce this sort of in the end of the day, it's really quite simple, right? It's just a two-variable problem. <laughs> but sure, um, uh, getting there. At the end of the day, the yep, yeah, exactly. Uh, the plants did predict this this southern and Mexican origin for these rocks that wow. now sit in Washington State.
1: I mean, what an incredible sort of sanity check in the work, right, is to be able to look at areas where you know we're fixed and areas that might not be, and to really find right. this, this really nice scaling rule that gives you uh, sort of reasonable assumptions everywhere you're looking at it. So the fact that it repeats itself, and that, you know, yes. you could say things that are lining up, these multiple lines of evidence, and that's another thing to really drive home with a lot of this work, because you hear about it on, say, the History Channel or the Discovery right. Channel. You get these little snapshots, and people go like, well, how, come on, this is just someone going right. out and looking, but there are so many different areas that you're correlating evidence from a lot of different, uh, even sciences, really, uh, to try to make these assumptions more realistic or at least more uh, accurate and, and defensible.
0: Absolutely. Right. I mean, it, that's the key. Right. You have to see that repeatability and, and you want to see that the, the different methods that you're using are all sort of starting to line up. <laughs> right. They are, they're pointed in different directions. Uh, you better get back to the drawing board. And we have. um there's a couple of techniques out there. Some of them are based on isotopes of mineral formation or isotopes. Well, it's still mineral formation of um, teeth. In, you know, As animals grow, they will build their different hard tissues. And those things are correlated to the temperature of their bodies. And if they're cold-blooded animals, that means that it's correlated to the environment. Mm. But it, what's really nice is that these different proxies for temperature in the past give us similar mm-hmm. answers. So we, we feel pretty confident that plants really are telling us something about ancient climates, particularly as it as it pertains to the average temperature of the year. Um, if we didn't have that, you know, it would would throw some doubt certainly into the uh, utility of these tools, uh, particularly this this uh, mean annual temperature tool as it pertains to plants. Yeah. For continued work, right? We would need to hit right. the drawing board again,
1: right? And what's also cool again is when you're diving into the trait-based literature, especially for plants. One of the big, like, if you're reading, especially a big theoretical one that's trying to prove some sort of scaling rule or uh, trade-off sort of rules, you you inevitably come across this idea that uh, the the advantage of trait-based. Studies Is that they remove a lot of that nuance of taxonomic community composition, Mm -hmm. species identity. And one thing that I've picked up on from talking to paleobotanists in the past is how difficult even with something that looks sort of familiar to what you see today is to how do we apply this to something? Is it a group we know about a taxonomic unit that exists today? Is it something completely novel that went extinct? Uh, But what's nice is, like, you don't necessarily have to... It's cool to think about that stuff, but as trying to answer the questions you're doing, you don't have to worry. It's one step removed. You go, okay, we'll worry about species ID later. We kind of know what groups these belong to. But at least with the traits, you're getting a little bit closer to the answer um, and and not having to worry exactly about, is this a euphorbiaceae or, uh, you know, some sort of benetit or whatever, (laughs) however you say it. You realize how many things you don't say out loud. You just read them. Right,
0: yeah. Exactly. Uh, No, you're absolutely right. And not to denigrate our science too much, but uh, in some ways we're stamp collecting, right? We're just (laughs) making these big collections of of stamps. But, you know, all we have to do to get these things to operate is to separate them into what we might term operational taxonomic units. So we're not, we don't really care for this work, for the trait-based work, you know, what its relative is today. We need to separate it into, into what we think species and we use a number of morphological characters to do that. But again, we just, we call them morphotypes and um, they should be, we think, equivalent to what are real biological species. Hmm. But again, I don't really care if this leaf is belongs to that family or this family. I just care that it's a different species than this other thing that's also at the same site. And um, once I've separated it into its different species, so again, the sort of stamp collecting, right, you've sort of uh, separated it into its different categories, then you can start to apply these techniques that, you know, you, where you need uh, some sense of the different species, but you don't really care what they are. And I should say that I always care what they right, are. Right, right. That's <laughs> the, bot- the, the botanist in me. In the is always coming out. <laughs> being like, yes, exactly. But it's not necessary for these techniques to proceed. Yeah. You
1: know? Right. And that's cool. I mean, it's always like the collaborative aspect of this. I mean, maybe that's someone else's specialty and that's where another paper can come on board right. and, and a bigger picture gets painted eventually. But just to kind of put this into context, now you mentioned sort of the time frame we're looking at here, but, you know, put it into a, a framework of understanding that, you know, the average listener will know, I mean, was T-Rex walking around on the landscape at this point in time? Yeah. And
0: Yeah. So let's, let's, um, uh, wind the clock all the way back. So, um, You know, Earth is four and a half billion years old. It's about 540 million years ago. We get shelly, you know, multicellular life and abundance, the beginning of the Phanerozoic. We got our three stages, our Paleozoic, Mesozoic, and Cenozoic. Angiosperms, the flowering plants, uh, arrive on the scene uh, about halfway through the Mesozoic, about 145 million years ago. So plants colonized lands, say, 420, 430 million years ago. And so for most of their history, there's no flower anywhere on the planet. Uh, There's no such thing as a flowering plant. And then 145, 150 million years ago, this incredible adaptation, uh, essentially the flower, but it's just, it's this unbelievable suite of adaptations. Mm. There's so many different characters that come along with being an angiosperm. And today, now they dominate the planet. So today we're 95% angiosperms, flowering plants. And so that transition has happened very, very recently. Uh, So it's the beginning of the Cretaceous to the sort of present day. And then what's sort of interesting is that um, the Cretaceous itself, um, the last part of the Mesozoic, is actually longer than all the times since the Cretaceous. Uh-oh. So, uh, so more than half of angiosperm evolution plays out in the Cretaceous. And then there's the Cenozoic afterwards, the time we live in now, um, is about 66 million years long. The Cretaceous is about 85 million years long. Uh, but again, to put it in that sort of dinosaur context, which I think is very useful, right? Because we we all kind of know uh, the big dinosaurs out there. Um, uh, Stegosaurus was a, was a critter who lived in the Jurassic and uh, probably went extinct maybe 150 or so million years ago, right about the time sperms were evolving. Uh, and it's the guy with the big plates on his back and spikes on his tail. And T-Rex, our favorite iconic dinosaur, saw the end of the dinosaurs, right? Witnessed right. the asteroid impact. So we lived about 68 to 66 million years ago. So there's more time separating Stegosaurus from T-Rex than T-Rex from us at this present moment, right? We're closer neighbors in time to T-Rex than T-Rex wow. is to what you would think, you know, as a kid when I had all my dinosaur toys and playing <laughs> in the bathtub, they're all fighting each other, right?
1: Right. right. It's almost <laughs> they like would have
0: never seen each other.
1: Expected that uh, Stegosaurus whacked T Rex with its tail, but that's not exactly. the case, <laughs> right? Exactly.
0: So I, I spend most of my time in that in that Cretaceous and just post KT world working on plants, and I really you know, focus again on the flowering plants, the
1: angiosperms.
0: But they only occupy half of even dinosaur evolution. Wow. So, yeah. So what we're talking about here with some of this stuff in in Washington State and and here in Colorado, is sort of spans the Cretaceous. And it's alongside all the horned dinosaurs and the hadrosaurs and, of course, all the different theropods. Um, Not all of them. There are theropods earlier than this, but, you know, all the big guys that we know and love. Uh, The T-Rexes, if you will.
1: Right. Gigantism at its greatest.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah.
1: But when you're looking at these fossil floras, I mean, I, this is my ignorance of the subject coming into play here, but yeah. you know, you, you can kind of time these out based on dating and all that, but the fossils you're looking at were they all laid down at the same event. I mean, was this like a volcano right. erupted or a, a flood happened, a landslide, and they all just kind of got deposited at the same time, or are you kind of spanning some time, even within this like calibration context of what you're looking at, at least in Washington? Yeah
0: yeah oh yeah so you are definitely spanning time um and this is sort of fundamental to the nature of the fossil record and as you become a paleontologist you, you begin to wrap your head around this you probably never witness any two floras that are exactly the same right <laughs> and you know and we see change in our modern forest playing out over decades and i would never be able to resolve anything similar to a decade a century a millennium anything like that right I've, 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 I've sort of faced with um, a stack of rocks where you know there are different layers and different environments in those layers, whether they be streams or the floodplain or ponds or little lakes that accumulate these fossil plants. But they themselves are not, you know, the same forest, if you will. Mm-hmm. But we like to make we make that assumption, right? That um, and that's one of the parts that's really hard sometimes when we're talking about paleoecology and modern ecology, right? Modern ecology is playing out over the last couple of hundred years and paleoecology the finest resolution is probably maybe 10 to 100,000 oh, years wow. to resolve. So okay. we still have that gap between our our fields. So to answer your question, yes, right? So we hope that variation over a shorter time scale is is averaged out in a forest, if you will, right? So we do know forests change pretty quickly, right? Since the last ice age, you know, 10, 12, 14,000 years ago, you know, forests have moved a lot in North America. They move south when the glaciers advanced, they move north when the glaciers retreated. And I might be looking at floras that are 20,000 years apart. So, Mm. right, I mean, you start to wonder like, okay, you know, so you have to, you have to trust that those forests aren't moving that much that you collect enough data that you're averaging out those changes. right? Um, but the error that you might see in these data sets might just simply be a result of those shorter term variations and climatic cycles.
1: So. Sure. I mean, it's ecology, it's messy, right? But I mean, you could yes. go back yeah. in time, even 20,000 years on this continent, and still see similar players. I mean, I remember going to the gray, right. the gray fossil site in eastern Tennessee and looking at their paleobotany collections, and just going like, I got goosebumps because you're like, that's a post oak, and that's that's yeah. a, a hickory nut. You know, I mean, there's there's familiarity there, and at least you know, you c- like you said, you can average out some of that noise and and say something big about the climate, the ecology of that area. Right. And, and and again, these avenues can go so much farther than this. In fact, some of your work also looks at how communities change through time, which is also very exciting, especially when you talk about sort of the Cretaceous boundary here, when when everything. Changed in a very big way. Probably one of the most familiar extinction events uh, that humans know about.
0: I think so. Well, I hope so. Um, and it was it was a remarkable extinction event because we you know we're hit by this asteroid, and it's a it's essentially a once in a billion year event. It really should have never happened. Um, <laughs> the The physics of the solar system is supposed to sweep Jupiter, and I don't really quite understand all the details, but the deal is is that the big planets their gravity is supposed to sweep up all these things and we're not supposed to be hit by them and so as far as we know the the end of the cretaceous impact uh this giant asteroid is the third largest in earth's history the two other larger ones are billions of years old Hmm. and so yeah i mean the end of the cretaceous came to a close with this giant piece of metal and rock from outer space, it was maybe as much as ten miles wide, moving at about one hundred and fifty thousand miles an hour, and it probably oh. made near passes to Earth thousands of times. Dang. And then sixty-six million years ago, it came in from the south over Antarctica, which was forested—a very different, uh, still at the South Pole. Uh, it's been down Weird. there for a while, but totally forested in a world without ice. And uh, if you're on the front of that thing, you. We would have seen a forested Antarctica, South America, and then slammed into the Yucatan Peninsula at this unbelievable rate of 150 so thousand miles an hour, blew a hole in the ground 20 miles deep, 120 miles across, something like that, sent a shockwave and firestorm to Alaska in five minutes. Ooh. And those of us sitting here in North America would have been vaporized <laughs> if you didn't have a you weren't deep in a valley and had some way to sort of escape the the blast wave, the propagation of the blast wave. And that plus all these incredible sort of uh, environmental effects uh, in the ensuing days, weeks and decades and even centuries led the dinosaurs to go extinct as well as many, many plants.
1: And that's never really talked about, but it is, it's obvious, like it wouldn't just have been the dinosaurs. I mean, things survived. We're here today yep. talking because things yes. survived. And and honestly, I would have rather been vaporized uh, than have to be in a valley mm. and lived through any amount of days following yeah, that. Right. But, you know, that's right. a exactly. I mean, literally and figuratively an earth shattering event. And to try to understand how life responds to that can give us a lot of deep insights to how life responds to any sort of disturbance, especially when it's something that's coming from outer space. And is that? intense and what's really interesting is you have been able to look at fossil floras on both sides of that event right and and compare how things change but again from this trait-based perspective and you've gone beyond just the uh the tooth proxy that we've talked about here you can actually say something about like growth rates and potential like quote-unquote weediness at at the same time to look at how floras changed in response to that so let's let's dive into that a little bit more
0: yeah, exactly. So uh, uh, this this sort of loops back to our, our friend Jack Wolf, who predicted that uh, maybe at the KT boundary, given these incredible sort of atmospheric effects, uh, including a nuclear winter and a dimming of the sun. Mm. So, so much dust in the atmosphere may have dimmed the sun by 20, 25 percent. Um, and it's sort of like taking your full sun house plant, putting it in the corner of your house, and it does not do well, right? So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so things that needed "quote unquote" full sun were in deep trouble there for a while. as you know maybe the dust that was in the in the air for a decade or something like that. But this led to what was almost certainly akin to a nuclear winter. Wow. And so you can imagine now sort of the environmental selective pressures that would have been put on plants. Uh, and then you could sort of start to back out. Like, can we make some predictions about what might have survived? And and Jack, in particular, thought maybe deciduousness would have been a key sort of trait. If you if you were a deciduous plant, you could probably that would increase your odds of survival mm. uh, through this sort of global event. And one of the ways we can get at deciduousness, or at least hint at it, is this idea of leaf lifespan, how long a tree might hold on to a leaf. And it, and it all comes back to the leaf economic spectrum, this idea that plants invest resources into their different parts, including their leaves, with sort of a different strategy so, might invest a ton of energy and resources into something that you want to keep a long time and you might grow very slow and the reverse might be true where you grow very fast you put few resources in and you discard your your leaves in a sort of a deciduous fashion so the way we get at that in the fossil record again we don't quite have the same wonderful data as the modern record we can't go away our leaves as we talked about yeah so what we do is we there's this proxy where we look at the, the area of the leaf compared to the width of the petiole And the idea is simply sort of an engineering principle wherein a thicker petiole is needed to hold up a heavier leaf Mm. and a thinner petiole is used for a less weighty leaf. And so just by comparing, we call it leaf mass per area across the KT boundary, we've been able to show that fast return, low leaf lifespan or short leaf lifespan was selected for at the boundary and thus likely deciduousness. And that might've been one of the ways that, uh, plant survived this, uh, this event.
1: Wow. And that is such a cool set of like, okay, this scales to this. And then if we can say that we can say this about it, that's a really cool sort of set of lines of evidence that are all built off of sort of these observations. Like you said, made a long time ago, you're coming back to test them. And what's cool is that you have a very uh, distinct phenomenon, a disturbance event, if you will, to right. kind of pinpoint yep. that. And when you look at the data that you've generated with some of this work, I mean, it is stark. I, you can literally draw that line down the graph and go like, oh, these became way more abundant during this this, right. this transition right. period, which, again, those sanity checks, when you see that play out in the data, that must have been a moment where you're like, Whoa.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It is interesting, right? Because, you know, for the longest time, there was a big debate of whether or not, you know, the Cretaceous came to a close quickly or slowly. Mm -hmm. And so in the 80s, and it was really fossil plants that sort of helped solve this problem. And Kirk Johnson, who's now the head of the Smithsonian. But for the longest time, it it was just like plate tectonics, where it was like these ideas emerging that we were sort of stuck on this idea that everything must have happened slowly in the past since it was so long ago when in fact, of course, you know, any number of things can happen fast in the past. They just are things in the past, right? <laughs> so uh, he was pretty instrumental at showing that the the species turnover at the boundary was instantaneous. Wow. And so, you know, we lost something like 60 plus percent of North American tree species as seen through their leaves and the rocks at the boundary. And we've been, you know, we've built similar data sets. So i helped build some of the data sets down here in Colorado that show the same kinds of things. But we keep mining that same data set, right? So that, you know, he probably had a eureka moment there in the late 80s where I was like, whoa, this is a huge boundary, <laughs> you know, and that it was super rapid and it happened in a single line in the rocks everywhere here in North America, at least. And the more people look around the world, the more they see that same pattern. And then we start to throw all these, these cool sort of trait-based proxies and they keep telling us, you know now we can start looking into the ecology a little bit thinking about again, like, oh my God, like you, you just wouldn't even have recognized the forest afterwards. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So you, if you were, you know, getting chased by a T-Rex and had enough time to look up at the trees at the end of the Cretaceous, it would have been a very different world than just some, you know, 10 hundred million years later as the forest came back after the boundary, no more, no more dinosaurs. Thankfully, you just have a <laughs> little couple of little like uh raccoons running around your feet, but um, the forest just would have looked really different, particularly to a botanist, right? You really would have felt like you were in a different world, you know, before and after that asteroid impact. Once, of course, the forest came back, because there was an incredible succession of plants leading back to the, the forest that replaced the Cretaceous forest.
1: Now, what do you mean by that in terms of just you see different types of plants kind of coming in rapidly right afterwards? You, you, I mean, again, you, you're doing this sort of removed from the taxonomic unit, but you kind of know life history-wise, were these gymnosperms, were these angiosperms, and you can start asking questions, at least, like you said, from the c- uh, ecological standpoint of, like, what did that process of recovery look like?
0: So it's just like playing out that same ecological succession problem in a modern landscape. So just think about a forest fire, right? And there's all these classic ecological uh, succession studies where you burn something down to the ground and you watch how plants and animals recolonize that patch of land. Now you just... In the great case of the KT boundary, you burn everything to the ground (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) Scorched (laughs) earth. So, (laughs) so, (laughs) Exactly. But it turns out there's this incredible succession that plays out in the fossils after the boundary. We see uh, globally, right after the impact, a proliferation of ferns. Mm. And we call it the fern spore spike. And there's actually two of them. So there's a succession within the ferns themselves. So you can imagine a blanket of ferns colonizing the landscape, some you know, ferns are early successional plants. They love to, say, colonize landscapes after volcanic eruptions. There's plenty of mineral-rich soils. And if there's water, you know, a little fern spore can drop, and then the, the fern spore uh, or the fern life cycle can start, and they'll blanket the landscape. But they're, of course, that earliest successional plant, and they themselves get replaced. Um, and in the case of the KT boundary, it seems like there's a blanket of low cover ferns, which is actually replaced by tree ferns. Could either be Cyathea, the tree fern, or something closely related that replace it. And this is playing out over maybe a thousand or so years. Oh, okay. Because of course, it unlike a forest fire, you're now repopulating a planet <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to like, you know, the the mountainside that was burnt. Right. Um, and following the uh, ferns, we start to see a a pretty patchy landscape. You get a lot of early successional angiosperms um, uh, finding their little patch of land as well. So a very low diversity flora, but all these early successional things. You see a lot of palms. Uh, there's a lot of mm-hmm. palms that like disturbed environments. Uh, think of them as you know, in the tropics. There's uh, groups of palms that really like the sandy banks of rivers and you know uh, maybe some poor soils and open areas. So we see really a proliferation of, of palms, particularly here in Colorado, maybe not so much in the environments up in, in North Dakota where some of our other data sets are from. And then the Paleocene forests, sort of the precursors to the forests that live around us today, emerge. And again, it's not as though there are things evolving de novo, but Mm. by and large, what you're looking at is a recolonization of the earth from things that probably survived. So, you know, the more we look, when we see something pop up for the first time in the rocks after the KT boundary, it was probably living on the landscape somewhere in the Cretaceous. We just haven't found it as a fossil And this is its moment, right? As the forests have been cleared, the incumbents have been wiped out on the floodplains, and now it is uh, proliferating uh, all through our environments that we study here.
1: Wow, That is so cool. I love these deep time perspectives because it puts into context that, you know, this idea that what we're seeing today is our our dynamics, at the very least, that have been playing out since life sort of made its appearance. And the players might change, but the the rules of interacting organisms are largely the same. But it's also amazing that there are players that you could probably go outside and see at least some relatives of today. I mean, obviously, Cycads made it through and there's a lot of evidence that their diversification came way after this uh, for what we know and love today. But that's right. It's amazing to think about all of the niche space that had opened up all of the possibilities now for the, the survivors. And it's almost like you can go outside today and like pat these trees on the back and be like your ancestors made it man this is this yes, is it right. you did it you <laughs> are like
0: yeah, a surviving right. lineage <laughs> right yeah right exactly and it's cool because again when you look outside the window and, and you think that way you know the flora and fauna around us are a product of all these incredible events that led to this moment and you can see the history right in those in those trees if you will as our sciences sort of begin to get closer and closer and they've We've done a pretty good job over the last couple of decades, but as ecologists and paleoecologists start to figure out how to work more and more together, it really is this continuum, right? Mm -hmm. That we're we're not just, you know, looking at the snapshot today, but rather looking at all the history that came before it as well, uh, which is really exciting.
1: Yeah. And that's, again, the paleontology aspect. It's it's literally writing the origin story of everything we know and love and recognize today. And that's what gets me so excited about reading work like this, even if I don't myself get to dabble in it uh, ever but <laughs> it also puts into context a lot of these special places on earth like New Caledonia or Fiji that have been right. adrift for very long times and have yep. rep- a, a disproportionate amount of representatives of something very old and very yep. different than what most of the continents and islands today get to uh, uh, call their own floras
0: yeah they it was so yeah it's so cool because they are they somehow well being isolated as you just said they've been a, a sort of saved from the arms race on the continents, if you will. Um, right. And so they are this refugia of these old ancient things. And uh, I can remember for my PhD working on these fossil plants that are hundred million years old, looking at conifer as literally, as you say, live only in New Caledonia today <laughs> and uh, sitting there in Washington state saying like, oh my God, this is a new Caledonian tree. <laughs> that only lives in like two valleys and survives by dropping its seeds in rivers and somehow reproducing. It's just it's insane. And there it is in the fossil, you know, in the rocks a hundred million years ago. Wild,
1: yeah. And I mean, you're such in a you're in such a good position as both a botanist and a paleobotanist to. Be able to have that enjoyment and be able to recognize that as special and and a really unique opportunity for you as a person and any of your colleagues and people that get to work on this. It's, I think it probably, I mean, you can speak better for yourself, puts you in a different sort of position from most of us for appreciating life and 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 our, the odds that we even ended up here talking today.
0: Well, this is a great plug for paleobotany. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I think... There is this beautiful moment uh, when you are collecting fossil plants. And what's nice about fossil plants is you can actually, as a private citizen, go collect them in many places, unlike other types of fossils that are protected Uh, because fossil plants are pretty darn abundant. Mm. Um, But when you crack open that rock, so you're cracking open a 50 million year old rock in central Wyoming, you know, that's a leaf that, that you might find this beautifully, perfectly preserved leaf. It was on a tree. Its whole mission in life, its whole goal in life, was just to capture sunlight. And then it's and it had that for a year, a season. (laughs) Landed in the rocks and had to sit in the rocks for fifty million years. And you crack it open, and you're the first human being to see it, right? And it's this, and it finally sees the sun again, right? Which is uh, there's something sort of poetic about that as well. And then there's they're just beautiful things, right? Uh, You know, if you if you have a connection to plants. Probably also have a connection to leaves and all their all the beauty that they bring to the table, and that is seeing it entombed in rocks and being the first person to crack open a rock and see a leaf is a special moment, right? We don't get those kinds of things all the time, but as paleobotanists, maybe we get an uh, you know an outsized portion of those sort of fun discovery moments, if you will, uh, <laughs> uh, which is really cool. So I certainly encourage people to go out and crack some rocks and find some fossil leaves. Heck yeah! Thanks.
1: And and talk about, like, getting people interested in a topic. I mean, it is one thing to go to a museum and see this stuff behind glass or, or, or highly curated, but it's another thing to actually be that person, like you said. And then, you know, I think in my own life, there's a few moments that have made me had to take a moment and, like, sit down and, like, just mm-hmm. kind of, like, hold hold on to the earth. And one was yeah. seeing a galaxy through a telescope for the first time. I mean, talk about oh, feeling small God. and insignificant. No. But the yeah. other was walking yeah. through a quarry in Northeastern Pennsylvania, just full of carbon. It was a carboniferous forest yeah. floor. And you're just yeah. looking down at the ground going like, Oh my God. And then there's things yeah. that are recognizable. I mean, maybe shapes. Yeah. They're not necessarily the same even right. lineage, but shapes. Right. I mean, this is yep. life repeats itself. The physics of nature and the, and the environment shape light. It's, They're just amazing learning moments. And even if you don't follow it as a career, having that insight and and just respect for what's going on just connects you to everything so much deeper, in my opinion.
0: I think what you really want to do bad is time travel. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> if you could find <laughs> me looking, someone. <laughs> yeah.
0: If you're, if you're uh, looking up at the stars and looking at hundred million year old light coming from a galaxy and then walking through a 300 million year old forest here on earth, that's kind of, you know, and that's the sort of common theme man. and, and fossils allow us to time travel. They literally allow us to time travel. And if you can find yourself in one of those spots like that quarry in Pennsylvania, it's, it's just one of those things you won't ever forget, right? Yeah. You literally are walking through a forest that's 300 million years old, and yes, yeah, so you've got to use your brain to and oh, imagine no. the trees, <laughs> <laughs> imagine the trees towering above you, you know, spore-bearing, you know, bizarre trees, the lycopsids that, that grow to like five inches tall now, growing to 100 feet tall then, um, all kinds of beautiful things like that. But you literally are time traveling. It's really-
1: yeah, it's uh, it's always funny when those topics come up in like distant groups of people that aren't necessarily nerds like we are, um, yeah, you know, people, right. if you had a time machine, I like I would go back to the Carboniferous just to see what it's like <laughs> and then get eaten by a giant millipede or, or an amphibian. <laughs> so right, exactly. I would just skip yeah, all the right. human stuff uh, and go. Wait. <laughs> whatever. I love it. I just, I like turning heads and being weird, but
0: (laughs) yeah, yeah, right. Uh, that's awesome. I love it.
1: So speaking of like nerding out and just having a complete passion for this, I think this conversation really shows that this is a, the, the right career path for you, but where, what are you excited for? I mean, where are you going next? What kind of things are just over the horizon in terms of research and, and paleobotany for you?
0: Yeah. So we, we've got a pretty laser focused on the KT boundary right now. So we made this really incredible discovery a few years ago of a treasure trove of vertebrates in particular right mm. after the boundary, hmm. wherein so it, it turns out that vertebrate fossils in the sort of first million years after the extinction of the dinosaurs are pretty darn rare. Hmm. And we sort of reconstruct these early placental mammals in particular from little jawbone chunks and teeth <laughs> and so on and so forth. And yet this moment, sort of a million years after the extinction of the dinosaurs is sort of where the the clade of placental mammals begins to truly diversify. And of course, placental mammals, of which we are two, dominate the planet today. So all of this incredible evolution is happening right after the time of the dinosaurs in the mammal world. And so about three, four years ago, a colleague and me uh, made this really incredible discovery right here in Colorado, where previously we'd... In all of North American museums, there was like four or five skulls, partial skulls of early placental mammals known. Hmm. And then in a hundred years of looking, that's all anybody had ever found. And um, so my colleague, Tyler Leeson, who's a curator at the museum, and we worked together a lot on the KT boundary, um, had been working in South Africa. And he, there in South Africa, instead of looking for the bone on the surface, those paleontologists They're looking at a time period that's much older, but they look for bone in concretions. The bone has been encased in, in sort of a mineral glue, if you will, or dough that grows around the bones. And so they become these amorphous, you know, off colored rocks, but you don't see any bone. And, um, It's just not a search image we use for looking for fossils (laughs) in terrestrial settings. We we use it in marine settings. Mm. So if you're looking for ammonites and other things like that, you're looking for concretions but not so much on land. And so we applied this filter to this pile of rocks right here in our backyard just an hour from the museum and uh, uh, basically found this unbelievable treasure trove of new data and once we sort of figured out where these fossils were hiding in plain sight, even though people have been walking across this patch of land for a hundred years, <laughs> including my, my, I've been walking across it for about 20 and <laughs> uh, we found five skulls in about the first hour. So we doubled Whoa. the number of skulls oh in all God. North American museums in an hour. Oh. And now we have something like a couple hundred, but there's wow. this whole new data set into early mammals. And so we've been building up the vertebrate record, but the plant record alongside it. Awesome. So so really, tying those two together and figuring out how the plants and animals are co-evolving, and how those tie to sort of global events—not only the extinction itself, but at that same or the asteroid itself—but at that same time, there are these massive volcanic eruptions in India that were going off before mm-hmm. the extinction happened and afterwards. And they see there's been this debate of volcano versus asteroid for a long time in terms of the extinction. We we fall in the asteroid camp, but that debate still continues. But it turns out that we actually think that the volcanoes in India were actually driving evolution in the time afterwards. So hmm. um, most of their eruptive volume is post-post extinction post asteroid, and they seem to be driving big pulses of, of temperature increase. And again, we can get at that temperature through the fossil plants, and uh, we see the, we see big evolutionary jumps in the vertebrates at the same time. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of work focused on that post-KT extinction, that first million years. And here in North America, we have that record maybe better than anywhere on Earth. Nice, It's sort of remarkable. But the Rocky Mountains were coming up. They had been rising for a few million years prior to the extinction. But when a mountain rises, it makes basins around it. And those basins fill with rock or with sediment that turned to rock, but then entomb our our fossils. And so it's as if the tape recorder were running right (laughs) through this critical period of time. And so that's why we spend so much time, in part, working on the KT boundary here in North America. So I've been working a lot on on that part and uh, uh, sort of pulling that together with our colleagues working in the vertebrates and, and and other things like that. And one thing I do want to get back to eventually, and I've sort of let languish, it, is the idea of, of paleo elevation in the Rockies. Ooh. And so figuring out the height of ancient mountain ranges is incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, there, it's just really hard. It's just a really hard thing to. There's no barometers, right? You can't. <laughs> you can't figure out, you know, air pressure at the top of a mountain versus at the bottom. Uh, so there's a handful of techniques. There's we actually look at uh, basalt flows and look at the bubbles inside the basalt flows, and the pressure of the air controls the size of the bubbles. We look at isotopes rained out from from clouds and all kinds of different things to sort of think about how high these mountains were. But fossil plants can help us there too. So if you have fossil plants at the bottom of the mountain and somewhere near the top of the mountain, we can figure out the difference in their temperature. Again, as we've talked about with the teeth and the leaves, you know, dividing them into species and so on and so forth. And we all know as you go up a mountain range, you got to put on your coat, right? It gets colder. And so if you have these cold floors at the tops of the mountains and warm floors at the bottom, you can uh, use what we call the terrestrial lapse rate. That is how temperature changes as you go up in elevation to back out the paleo elevation of these incredible ancient mountain ranges. And so I I did some of that work when I was first at the museum and I got pulled into all kinds of Pleistocene things, the <laughs> boundary and I'm excited to get back to that someday. So, yeah.
1: Wow, that is so exciting and obviously open door, I would love to have you back on to talk about both of those trajectories and that's uh that's really interesting stuff especially when it comes to you know, what did what did this continent even look like at this point, yes, you know, how exactly. different were things. So, Cool. Um, If people want to keep a finger on the pulse of your work or just the work of your colleagues, I mean, how do you recommend they go looking for more information on this? I will add links, so don't worry too much about remembering what the exact URL is, but where do they go looking?
0: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so certainly our website at the museum, we have a good science set of, of pages associated with all the scientists at the museum, and you can look us up there and click on different projects. and. You know, in terms of this KT boundary work, there is a, we did have a really cool Nova special that just came out called Rise of the Mammals. Nice. That was uh, in 2019. And uh, that detailed this work about how life recovered after the uh, extinction of the dinosaurs. And that relates again, mammals to plants and tells this whole story. Um, inside that, you'll see this unbelievable moment where one of the teens that we work with, we work with teens every summer, she finds the earliest legume
1: in oh, her geez. history. Oh.
0: It was unbelievable. On camera. Oh, so, that's um, awesome. It was unbelievable, and uh, nobody could have ever predicted that. And uh, so she's sort of immortalized in this moment of uh, finding the world's oldest
1: legume. Wow. Amazing. Well, I... <sighs> Again, you never know what the next crack of the rocks going to bring, and it could exactly. just be a, a summer yep. camp situation. And now she's yep. famous for a reason she never thought she would be.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's ah, yep.
1: awesome. Well, I will put up links for everyone to find those and to be able to learn more about your work. But Dr. Miller, thank you so much for talking to us about this today. This is amazing work, and I, I really wish you all the best luck and 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 you know keep hammering away at those rocks because you're telling the story of Earth. Thank you for doing that.
0: Thank you, Matt. I really enjoyed this. This was this was awesome.
1: Great. All right. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and uh, stay safe out there. All right. Thank you. Cheers. All right. I bet you will never look at the margin of a leaf in the same way again. That was a really incredible conversation, and I thank Dr. Miller for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. As always, you can find all of the relevant links for more information on this subject and so much more over in the show notes for each episode. Just head on over to indefenseofplants.com podcast. If you're enjoying the show and you like the fact that it can come out each and every week for free, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash Indefense because I could not be doing it without all of the financial support I get each month from my wonderful patrons. Their financial contributions not only make this show possible, but it helps them get access to even more In Defense of Plants content, including multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. Speaking of patrons, I have a new shout out to the latest producer on this show. A big thank you goes to Eric. Eric went over to Patreon.com slash Indefense of Plants and signed up at the producer credit level, so Eric is getting access to all of the potential kickbacks that are available on our Patreon. Once again, I could not be doing this show without the financial support I get each month from the patrons, so if you want Indefense of Plants to have a future, consider signing up today. Of course, there are other ways to support the show as well. You can pick up my new book, Indefense of Plants and Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, wherever books are sold. I thank everyone that's given it a review so far. You were so kind, and I'm so happy to hear so many people are enjoying it. There is also plenty of merch available over at teespring.com stores slash It's customizable, and all of them feature wonderful vintage botanical prints. Finally, you can pick up stickers over at indefensibleplantscom shop. And if money really isn't in the cards for you, which I completely understand, at the very least, make sure you are subscribed to, and you've reviewed this podcast wherever you download it from each week. But that is it for me. I really thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoy having them. I will leave you with the fact that I was a recent guest on a podcast called That Shit is Poison. It was a really fun discussion about the rosary pea. So if you want to go check that out, just go check out their wonderful podcast. But that's it for me. Once again, I thank you all for listening and I'll talk to you next week. But until then, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.